Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another one of our episodes of The Breakdown, where we break down the completely subjective list of our five top most important stories in Alberta politics. Uh, and there is a whole lot to talk about, so much so that we even have a at least one uh, bonus story that we're going to go through. Uh, but we've got a couple, whole bunch that we're going to work through. So to start with... We're going to start with one of the stories that has been getting a lot of attention over the last week, in particular because it affects so many Albertans who are already dealing with uh, a fairly serious set of challenges. What I'm talking about is the situation that's been going on with the diabetes uh, patients and diabetes patients losing provincial coverage for insulin pumps. So just a little while ago, it came out that the government of Alberta had decided that they were going to effectively discontinue the current funding model for people to get uh, funding so that they can have diabetes pumps. Diabetes pumps are a really important part of diabetes management, especially for people who have type 1 diabetes, who require insulin, and it has to be very cal carefully calculated against their blood sugar. So these pumps aren't cheap. And that's a really important thing to, to highlight. Uh, typically, they can range upwards, uh, well, starting at around a base price of about $7,000. Uh, they last a few years, and they also require all of the supplies. But it allows people who are living with insulin-dependent diabetes a lot more freedom than they would normally be able to be afforded without those pumps. The government of Alberta has announced that they're going to be discontinuing that program. They still are going to leave a little bit of room for people to get funding, um, primarily for extremely low-income uh, people. Um, but they're basically kicking everybody else off the, the program and saying you can apply for government subsidies, perhaps. Uh, you can apply for private health insurance. And they will perhaps cover it? Perhaps not. Uh, as anybody who has applied for private health insurance knows, sometimes getting coverage for, air quotes, pre-existing conditions can be a bit of a challenge. So this is the big change that they've made. It's going to have a really big impact in the long term because what's ultimately going to end up happening is there will be people who won't be able to afford those insulin pumps, and there will be people who suffer health consequences from that. A lot of people aren't aware that diabetes, especially type 1 diabetes, comes with a long list of possible health complications. You have increased heart attack risk, you have increased stroke risk, you have uh, increased risk to uh, eyesight loss. It's, it's a very, very long list of health complications that come with it. And diabetes pumps go a long way to help mitigate and prevent some of those things from happening. So it's not just about the cost of the pumps, it's also about the reality that those pumps represent significant healthcare savings for other conditions down the the road. Now, that's where the story was up until this morning. But this morning, we got a DM from somebody who was paying very close attention to what's been going on with lobbyists. And it turns out that the company that was lobbying to have some changes made to the pump program, because guess what? They sell pumps. They 
are being represented by a lobbying group of whom which one of the partners has very, very close ties to the UCP. And in fact, it goes even much closer than close ties to the UCP. It's very, very close ties to the premier of Alberta himself. Cavi Ball, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that exactly correctly, was not only a senior press secretary to the Minister of Energy from October of 2019 to December of 2020, but he was also, for quite a few months, 10 months, the Director of Strategic Planning for the officer, Office of the Premier. This guy is now working with uh, and founded an advocacy strategy group that has in turn been spending a boatload of time lobbying the government to have public coverage for insulin pumps or supplies marketed specifically by their client. Now, when you combine this with the fact that Minister Copping was very clear that part of the reason for this change is so that they can get more high-tech pumps into the hands of people who need them, that's a heck of a coincidence. So it's, again, we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about the fact that there is this very close relationship between lobbyists and the government. And it's a bit of a revolving door. And there's the real questions that we believe should be asked about whether or not that revolving door influences policy. And certainly when we take a look, there was a, a, another person who a few months back mapped out a boatload of policy changes that came forward based on the lobbyist registry and who was working with that lobbyist registry uh, or sorry, who was working with those lobby groups. And it's very, very, there's a very, very clear pattern that seems to be that if UCP high level staffers uh, or press secretaries move to the lobby universe, they're able to push through changes in public policy that certainly seemed to benefit some people, but absolutely, as we've seen from the outcry from people over the last week in regards to this change with the insulin pumps, um, they have very, very real impacts and outcomes for people who are just trying to get by. Like we said before, we're going to be doing a couple of deep dives on some of those lobby groups over the next little bit. Uh, to help sort of flesh out some of those connections because it is super, super complicated. But it's an important conversation and it's a conversation that we're absolutely committed to pursuing. Our number two story. Some of you might remember a little while ago, there was a lawsuit that was launched against the Premier's office in regards to a wrongful termination um, that was in retaliation to somebody who raised concerns about a toxic workplace culture. This is where we get into the, the stories of the drinking and the, the shields up and people being intoxicated while being at the legislature. Um, that court case has been ongoing. And one of the things that's happened is the lawsuit is now moved into the discovery phase, which is where lawyers get to talk to everybody who's involved in the thing and they get to get the preliminary testimony. Uh, they get to get the preliminary information. Everybody gets to see what everybody's bringing to the table, all that kind of stuff. The lawyer for the person who's bringing this wrongful termination lawsuit, and I might be getting the exact terminology on what the specifics of the lawsuit are, but fundamentally who the, the, the lawyer for the person who's making the argument that they were fired in retaliation um, was trying to get the Premier of Alberta, Premier Jason Kenney, 
to testify. And this is an important piece because a large part of what that lawsuit is about has to do with the environment that Mr. Kenny is alleged to have certainly allowed to exist within his universe. But secondary to that, it has to do with questions as to whether or not that environment was actually encouraged. So asking for the, for the lawyer representing the person to um, ask to speak to the premier and, and to get his testimony is, is perfectly relevant. But that lawyer was told no. Well, there's a new motion that's been brought and they are now working to compel the premier to testify. So basically what's happening to, to really break it down is because the premier of Alberta has refused to speak to the lawyer of the person who's claiming that she was wrongfully terminated or terminated in retaliation because the premier has refused to have that conversation with the lawyer. We're now looking at a position or a situation where the premier of Alberta may well be facing a court order where he is required to testify. It's probably worth noting that all of this is going on at the same time as the UCP leadership race. One would think if there was a time where somebody was trying to demonstrate that they were above reproach, that they, they were being willing to be transparent, this would be the time to do it. That might be an assumption that some people would make. And yet it appears that Mr. Kenny has been doubling down and refusing to meet with that lawyer. Something, something climate, something, something management. Um, moving on to our third story. A really significant story potentially significant story, broke on May 7th. The CBC brought it forward. And it has to do with the fact that there are now substantial allegations that are being made towards purchases of memberships um, in the UCP leadership review. Now, there's a couple of different pieces that are really important to understand with this story. So the first one is, it comes from the Brian Jean camp. And one of Brian Jean's right-hand guys, Vitor Marciano, uh, has made the allegation that he knows that um, there were 4,000 new memberships that were purchased, but they were purchased using only six credit cards. Now, that's effectively, that means roughly 667, uh, I'm spitballing my math here a little bit, uh, memberships were bought using one credit card. And this is where it gets to be really tricky because first of all, the UCP has always said, no, 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 no. We never ever buy members. People aren't allowed to buy memberships for other people. That's not how it works. We've never done that. But they introduced a bill just a few months ago, bill 81, that made it possible for people to pay for memberships for other people. The problem is though, Allegedly, these memberships that were purchased, these 4,000 memberships that were allegedly purchased using six credit cards, those were purchased on March 19th, in and abouts there. The legislation that allows, that made the changes that allow people to buy memberships for other people, even though the UCP has said that's against their policy, that, those changes didn't come in until effect until March 31st. So if the claims that are coming from Vitor Marciano are accurate and those 4,000 memberships were purchased by six credit cards, not only does it appear that that is a huge violation of the UCP rules, 
But it's also a violation of the, the rules that existed in Alberta governing how these things could work at the time. And that's a really, really big issue. It's also worth noting that these dates line up very closely to anecdotal reports that were circulated around social media that contained allegations that there had been community associations and cultural associations that had had their lists procured so that the people on those lists could have UCP memberships lists bought for them. Now, Mr. Kenny has said that no, as long as he gets 50% of the vote plus one vote, he'll be staying on. Now, historically, that's not what happens in leadership reviews. Historically, what happens in leadership reviews is unless you get an overwhelming majority, and it has been pointed out that Ralph Klein resigned shortly after getting 75% endorsement in his leadership review. And there's a long list of political figures in Alberta politics and federal politics who have resigned after getting 75% and higher numbers because they didn't feel that gave them a strong enough mandate to carry their party, particularly going into another election cycle. But Mr. Kenny, initially he said 65% and that's where he would stay on. But then he later moved those goalposts and he said 50% plus one vote. There's a lot of people who have a lot of concerns in regards to the integrity of this leadership review. And that comes from a lot of different places. There's certainly the RCMP investigation that is ongoing into in regards to the leadership race that saw Mr. Kenny become the leader of the UCP. There's certainly been lots of allegations and concerns raised in regards to the changes around the leadership review. We saw a leadership review where the all of the, the heavy hitters in the UCP stood up and they said, you know what? The only way to conduct a leadership review with integrity and transparency is to do it in person. And then they said, just kidding. We meant mail. And this is after there have been high-level UCP figures who have mocked mail-in ballots, some of whom tries to raise speculation in regards to the mail-in ballots that were used in the last federal election. All of a sudden, mail-in ballots were very, very good for them. So these constant moving of the goalposts have created a lot of questions about the integrity of this leadership review. The news now that there were allegedly 4,000 new memberships posted, purchased using only six credit cards only furthers those questions. It's going to be fascinating to see how the UCP chooses to move out of this leadership review, because the general consensus is that one way or the other, Mr. Kenny will walk out of the leadership review and he'll still be the leader of the UCP. How do they then move on into a new election cycle and claim to be able to present themselves as truly a united conservative party? With so many UCP MLAs who have openly, publicly said on the record that Mr. Kenny is a terrible leader and that he's bad for the province and that he's bad for their party. How are they going to move forward and say, nah, it's all cool, guys. We got 50 plus one. It's going to be a story that's going to be definitely worth paying attention to. And it's certainly one that we're going to be following quite closely. Our number four story has to do with Legal Aid Alberta. This was another story that was broken by CBC. CBC has been absolutely on fire 
It's really important to recognize that. There's a lot of people who like to say, oh, state funded media and all that. But they're doing some and they historically have done some of the highest level journalism that actually exists in this province and in the country. And when you see people who are openly condemning them, saying, oh, they're the worst and they're bought and paid for and uh, they have all of these vested interests, one perhaps need to look only at the stories that they're doing and the corruption and the concerns that they're raising to really wonder about what's actually going on. Because CBC historically has done a very good job of doing their homework and making sure that important stories come to light. And the story that they did regarding Legal Aid Alberta and the contract and the scandal that surrounded that is definitely one of those stories. For those of you that aren't familiar, Legal Aid is a program that is designed to give people who can't otherwise access lawyers when they need them the access to lawyers. These are, these are, these are lawyers who typically work at a significantly lower rate than what you would see for, for lawyers in private practice. Um, and these are lawyers who typically are signing up because they actually want to do good work to help people. Well, there was a contract that was brought forward and there is a lawyer who has stepped forward and said that there were a boatload of lawyers that chose not to continue with legal aid because of the specific provisions in the contract. The big one that has people upset is a policy that says Legal Aid Alberta may suspend a lawyer or remove them from their roster at any time without notice or fault. So what they're saying, what that clause effectively says is that if you're a lawyer and you're signing up for legal aid, legal aid can at any time say, nah, thanks, but no thanks. So a lawyer who has planned on fulfilling this role and helping Albertans who otherwise wouldn't have access to legal services could just be removed for no reason whatsoever. They don't have to be provided any reason whatsoever. And when you combine that with the fact that there are allegations that a person in a position of power, we don't know who that person was. We did see the provincial government issue a statement, uh, I believe it was today or yesterday, where they said, well, we don't know if that happens, but we absolutely condemn it. And the person who said that doesn't represent the government, which is a really bizarre statement because it seems to admit, well, we're going to say that they allegedly said that probably because it hasn't been proven in court yet. But we're also going to say that they're not affiliated with us. Well, if they don't know if the person said it. How would they possibly know, given that the person is as of yet unidentified, how would they possibly know who it was who said it that they could distance themselves from? But what that person said was effectively that if she toned down her criticism and her concerns about the legal contract, that was being offered to these legal aid lawyers, then eh, maybe they could grease the wheels a little bit. Maybe they could uh, write a letter to get her nominated as Queen's Counsel. And we've seen recently concerns that the Queen's Counsel position has been used as a bit of a political cudgel because there were some people who were recently supposed to be, certainly met the qualifications for being nominated for Queen's Counsel, who didn't. And you kind of have to wonder, why does this topic, why does this Queen's Council thing keep coming up over and over and over again if it's not being used as leverage, implied or otherwise? But the fundamental fact that there are a boatload of lawyers, 
and we don't know the specific number. The, the number ranges from anywhere from 100 to maybe less. There's a boatload of lawyers who didn't sign up for this contract because it included a provision that they could be let go at a moment's notice with no reason. How many people can you think of that would take a job that said, we're going to keep you on for as long as we want to, but we can let you go with no severance, no warning, no reasons at any time. There's not a lot of people who would take that job. And when we're talking about lawyers who are doing what they can to provide support for people who otherwise wouldn't have it, that's really indicative of a really big problem. Our fifth story is kind of a combination of a bunch of stories because there's a whole lot that has gone on in the last week in regards to it. And we're just going to put it under the broad umbrella of healthcare in Alberta. There were multiple stories this week talking about the fact that healthcare in Alberta, or sorry, in Alberta is not just in crisis, it's in failure. We saw from CTV Calgary a report that clearly stated patients in Alberta are at greater risk of negative health outcomes as ambulances struggle, ambulance services struggle to keep enough crews on the road. This is translating into a bunch of other areas where because some communities have had their obstetrical services removed or their labor and delivery services removed because they haven't had super high birth rates in those areas. Well, when you combine that with, well, we're going to move the obstetrical services for this 400 kilometer area. That's just a random number to be clear. We'll say 200 kilometer area. We're going to, we're going to remove them and we're going to put them 80 kilometers, 120 kilometers, 150 kilometers away. When you do that, you're relying on people's ability to get to those facilities to get the care that they need. But when you combine that with an ambulance service that is being widely reported to not be able to meet the needs anywhere near of what's going on with the province, what that means is those people who need that specialized obstetrical care, who need that labor and delivery care, they wouldn't be, they can't even get to the facilities that are providing it. And the facilities that used to provide it don't provide it anymore because they were closed down. That's just the tip of the iceberg with this thing, though. It goes a whole lot further. We saw Don Braid wrote a column this week where he talked about the fact that healthcare delays are killing patients. That comes directly. That's a quote from Dr. Paul Parks, uh, who's an emergency physician. And he's saying, we're missing some for sure. We're missing some. And when he was asked, does he mean people are dying because they aren't seen fast enough? Absolutely. This is a huge problem. And this is where it highlights the fact that we're not just talking about the, the EMS system. The entire system is starting to crumble. And that's a really big problem. There have been multiple for going back quite some time. We talked about a, uh, a letter that was written on our last episode from, an e from a nurse here in Calgary. And she penned that letter because of the unbelievable conditions at the Alberta Children's Hospital right now, where mental health patients aren't getting kids, mental health patients who are kids aren't getting the care that they're supposed to be getting in a timely fashion because the system is overwhelmed. She specifically referenced one day where kids and their parents were lined up out the door 
waiting to be triaged in the rain. It sounds like a bad Hollywood movie, but this was a week and a half ago in Calgary, Alberta. This is a systemic problem that is absolutely huge. There's a Twitter account called HSAA EMS. They reported today that on Tuesday of just this last week, there were 40 calls impending for ambulances. This means that there were 40 groups of people, 40 callers who had called in and said, I need an ambulance. And there were no ambulances to send them. There was a waiting list for ambulances on Tuesday, 40 people deep. This is unprecedented. And most alarmingly, it's sustained. One of the reactions to the letter that we read out last week was, I feel like this is recycled because I could have sworn that I, I read this letter six months ago. I could have sworn that I read this letter four months ago, two months ago. They were different letters. Healthcare workers have been trying to raise the alarm in the province in regards to how bad things are for quite some time. This is a really big problem. It's probably the biggest story because as we talked about at the beginning of the show, it's not just about that specific moment. It's when these things go unattended to. They have long-term consequences. And even if you don't want to address the moral issue that people should be able to get the care they need when they need it, the cost of letting these things go unattended, the cost of having people who are dealing with chronic conditions, not being able to access timely, reliable care, turns into huge costs down the road. We are writing checks that we're going to be trying to cash for generations because of how bad we've let the healthcare system get right now. And it's something that we really need to be taking a close look at. And it's certainly something heading into, we're literally just over a year away from the next provincial election. It's certainly something that we should all be raising with everybody who's talking about potentially running for office. It's something that we should all be demanding better for. With this healthcare piece, unfortunately comes some really bad news about the safe supply review panel. There have been no shortages of concerns <clears throat> raised in regards to the safe supply review panel. So for anybody who's not familiar, the government of Alberta decided that they were going to put together a panel to talk about the feasibility of safe supply in Alberta. If you don't know what safe supply, here's the Coles notes. Basically, one of the biggest arguments that exists in regards to why so many people are dying right now from opioid overdoses, particularly, but there's other drugs as well. One of the biggest reasons and one of the biggest arguments that people are saying, this is why so many people are dying, is because drugs are cut, street drugs, have no quality control. And they are cut with some of the most ridiculous stuff you would ever believe. There's no shortages of stories where people are talking about drugs that have been cut with um, somebody's taking opioids and there's another drug that's put into the mix that's the complete opposite of that drug. There's no control over how much of either of those drugs are in a specific dose. There have been anecdotal reports about opioids being mixed with 
drugs that lower your blood sugar because it makes you more tired and it amplifies the high. And it's a cheap way to do it because these drugs are super cheap and super easy to get a hold of. There is absolutely no quality control in street drugs. Full stop. Anybody who says different is lying through their teeth or they don't know what they're talking about. So one of the big arguments that you're seeing from a lot of people who are dealing with the opioid crisis and the drug crisis head on is, you know, what? one of the best ways that we could stop people from dying so that they can, when they're ready, get into treatment and they can get help. And they can learn to navigate and deal with not only the, the drug use, but whatever drove them to the drug use as well. Because it's often not recognized that a lot of people use drugs as a method of self-treatment for something. And so the argument is, we should be, as a, a state, we should be providing a safe supply for people who want to use these drugs or who need to use these drugs because there is an argument for that so that when they use them, they don't die. It's very similar to the argument for supervised consumption sites, which have overwhelmingly proven to have a positive impact. Nobody has died in a supervised consumption site in Alberta, full stop. And in fact, there was a recent paper that was released that showed that just the supervised consumption site at the Sheldon Schumer has saved taxpayers more than $2 million. So even again, if you can't get on board with the moral argument, you should be able to get on with the financial argument. So the UCP put together their supervised consumption sites review panel and immediately people started to raise the alarm, not only because of the type of information that they were using, but there was a very real concern raised by a lot of people that this panel was another UCP panel that was assembled to reach an already uh, decided upon conclusion. We saw that happen with the supervised consumption sites, the, the biggest supervised consumption site in Lethbridge, which at many points was the busiest and most effective supervised consumption site in North America, was closed down under the false pretense that they had lost money and that they had misappropriated money that they had not. That money was found. They did, however, that supervised consumption site panel did a great job of running up some very expensive meals on the taxpayer's dime. So there's a lot of people who have some concerns that this panel is the same kind of thing. And based on some of the information that they're collecting, there's a lot of people who are even more concerned because it's come out that there was a report put together, a rapid review of literature. And not only have a lot of frontline people who are on the front line of the opioid crisis come forward and said, whoa, 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 that re literature review, that left out some really important papers. And it included some papers that aren't accurate. And even the conclusions of that paper, the conclusions of that paper were basically, well, yes, but if we dealt with uh, financial insecurity and if we dealt with social isolation, that would deal with the problem. And that's arguably true, but in the interim, while you're going to, if your solution is we're just going to solve all of society's woes, if we do that, people will probably stop using dangerous drugs. If that's your whole argument, you're setting an impossible goal because in the entirety of human history, 
That's never been accomplished. But safe supply in some jurisdictions has been, and it saved lives. Not only were there advocacy groups, but there was actually an open letter that was released this week, signed by over 50 people with a lot of expertise in not only the supervised consumption site safe supply issue, but also in how these rapid reviews are supposed to work, who have said, this thing is of such low quality, it shouldn't be used. Well, they didn't say this. I'm going to say it. It shouldn't be used for toilet paper. That's how bad and how dangerous it is. But it's been accepted and adopted as a big part of the evidence that the UCP panel on safe supply are wanting to use. And that's something that everybody should be paying attention to. Because you don't have to go very far within your own social circle to find somebody who has lost somebody to the opioid crisis here in Alberta. It is easily one of the biggest public health crises, crises our province has ever faced. And it's certainly not something that we should be approaching with anything other than accurate, reliable, and tested data. It shouldn't be ideological. It should be about saving people's lives. Our bonus story for this week, well, there's two. But our first bonus story this week, there was some polling information that was leaked. And it has since been confirmed from a number of sources to be reflective of the poll. Now, we don't know for sure what the source of the polling data was. We have some pretty good ideas. There has been some pretty big issues lately, though, with people leaking polling data that wasn't theirs to leak because it was part of a subscribed service. We don't want to speculate as to who the polling data has come from, but insiders with both parties have confirmed to us that this is the data that they have seen as well. And we just want to quickly run down it because it has to do directly with Mr. Kenny's leadership review. So first of all, if election was to be held in the next 90 days, there would be 50 seats for the NDP, which would give them a majority government. This poll is suggesting that it would be all of Edmonton, almost all of Calgary. It's no surprise that Calgary would hold on to a, a few seats. Lethbridge and Medicine Hat. And it would leave 35 seats for the UCP and two others. Now, who those two others could be, that's a very interesting question. The NDP will beat the UCP in the, and it, the term is popular vote. We don't technically have a popular vote. Um, it, it, talking about the popular vote is like talking about the UCP got the majority of, of votes. Um, but it's saying that the majority of people would vote for the NDP over the UCP by 11 to 12% in all votes. Now, it's really important to realize that while the NDP might enjoy an 11 to 12% lead over the UCP in all voting areas, there's two places that, that it said we'll see other parties elected. So if the NDP has 12% but still doesn't win, eh. um, it says the majority, 44% of the vote will go towards the NDP, uh, 34 will go to the UCP, which leaves 22 to the other parties. 60% of Albertans believe that the removal of Kenny is the only path forward for a UCP win in 2030. That's a huge number. And that's a number that a lot of people should be paying very close attention to. 
The one that's really telling, though, 65% of women in Alberta will not vote for a Kenny-led UCP. And after the last week, that really shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone because the opposition leader, Rachel Notley, directly point at blank asked Mr. Kenny if he would ever support or allow for any kind of reduction in women's access to health care. And Mr. Kenny dodged the question. Given everything that's going on in the U.S. right now, given the, the belief, I mean, it hasn't happened yet. A paper was leaked and a lot of people got really upset because that paper was leaked. So there's some very strong reasons to believe that this is what we're going to see. But given the fact that we're likely to see the landmark decision that protects women's access to health care in the United States overturned, and given the fact that there's multiple states that have the ability and have legislation on the books ready to go to restrict women's access to health care. And given the fact that we have seen the UCP introduce and try to introduce legislation associated with conscience rights. And we've made a lot of jokes about that because the first time it was associated, the MLA in question who introduced that legislation didn't seem to know the difference between conscious or conscience rights. But the reality is, is that legislation was brought forward. It was proposed. And for anybody who doesn't know, conscience rights are the idea, the way that that legislation was proposed. Conscience rights are the idea that if you go to your doctor and you ask them to provide you a treatment that that doctor has a moral disagreement with, not only is that doctor not obliged to provide you that treatment, they're not under that law as it was proposed. They wouldn't have been obliged to even give you a referral to another physician who would provide that care. This has huge implications, not only for women's access to healthcare, but in particular for LGBTQ2S plus access to healthcare. This is a tremendous red flag. The fact that this legislation has already been floated. It didn't go through, but it was floated. That should be raising everybody's alarm. And the fact that the premier of Alberta wasn't willing to clearly and unequivocally state, not on my watch, the fact that he has members of his caucus and of his cabinet who have openly and publicly campaigned to limit and restrict women's access to health care, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that 65% of women in Alberta will not vote for a Kenny-led UCP. That's our top five stories of the week plus one. We're getting real close to the, uh, the, the leadership review and we are going to be going live that evening. Um, and hopefully we're hoping that a bunch of people will be willing to weigh in and share some of their thoughts, not only on the process, but on the results when we get them. Because it's going to have a huge impact on the future of Alberta. The other thing that we just want to mention is today is actually the breakdown's third year anniversary. We are officially three years old, so we can't drink or drive. Well, you shouldn't do I. Well, you shouldn't do both, but we can't drink and we can't drive in the province of Alberta as, a, as an entity. But we're three years old and that's pretty cool. So we wanted to just uh, share that and we wanted to say a big thank you to everybody who has helped get us to that three-year mark. Not only the people who have been part of the conversation, not only the people who have been generous enough to give us their time 
and appear as guests. But we also especially want to thank the people who have supported us through the last three years through our Patreon page. This is the part where I clear the room. But a big part of what enables us to do what we do comes from the fact that we get Patreon support from people who are willing to give up the cost of a cup of coffee to help us continue to do the kind of uh, and produce the kind of content that we try to do here. If you would be willing or interested in signing up to help us continue that work, you can do that at www.patreon.com slash the breakdown AB. Every little bit helps. Um, but if you're not able to and you're just listening and you're continuing the conversation, on social media, and in person. We want to say a big thank you to you on that. The breakdown was created in order to get more conversations started, to make politics a little bit more accessible and understandable for people, and we're going to continue trying to do that. So a big thank you to everybody who's been part of our last three-year journey, and keep the conversation going. Have a good week.